0: Welcome back to this episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. We will shortly get into the interview, which is uh, the main part of this episode. But before we begin, we got together here as an operations team, and we wanted you to know a few things. So here today is myself, Jaron Miller. I, of course, work on the operations team and work on planning the content that we publish to you.
1: Yep, and I'm Marlon Summers. I get to work on... Lots of things like finance, um, working on some upgrades to our website at the moment. Uh, rather drastic upgrades, by the way. And I am Vincent Miller. I
0: am also on the operations team with
1: Marlin and Jaron. And neither of them mentioned it yet, but this is the last episode of season three. Yeah, and let me add a little note about the podcast today. So we have a blog, uh, which we call Essays for King Jesus. And a while ago, I wrote an essay there On the topic of stewardship, um, but especially noticing that stewardship, when it's talked about in the Bible, is not just about, oh, you're managing God's money, or you're managing God's things, but I called it managers in God's household. Um, You're actually a position of responsibility um, among God's people. Is part of the emphasis of stewardship. And then we were able to do this conversation uh, with Kyle Stoltzfus, who's also a frequent um, contributor to Anabaptist Perspectives, uh, where him and I go back and forth, um, about the meaning of stewardship and this kind of perspective of the steward as somebody who's responsible for other people and in a managerial position, um, including some of these ideas about how business ownership then becomes uh, stewardship, not just of money, but of the people and kind of a social role in your community. So something else that goes along with this, besides the fact that it's tied into that essay, uh, which you can find the link in the show notes, is... A new format we never did before, Um, one of our staff members, um, David, um, picked up a little story that introduces the essay, and we did a very short animated video um, just laying out a couple of the key ideas in short form, uh, which we're releasing on our video channels today to go along with this.
0: Like was already mentioned, this is the last episode of season three, so for the next few months we won't be publishing um, regular episodes every week like we have been for the past year. But we are hard at work preparing for season four, which we hope to begin publishing um, sometime in the first half of next year. But in the meantime, there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of emails to write, phone calls to make asking people if they'll be willing to be a guest for an episode or two. Also, most of these guests we travel to meet with, to do the recording. So a lot of traveling, a lot of communication, a lot of planning, just a lot of work in general that we are doing for the next few months, preparing for season four.
1: Yeah. Thanks Jaron for that little preview. I'm really excited to keep working on stuff we have planned for season four. And also, just want to take the time to say I'm very thankful for uh, those of you who have partnered with us financially to make three seasons possible and put us in a position where we can keep going into season four. And for those of you who would like to make a gift toward that or maybe um, join those who are already making monthly contributions, um, you can find information about various ways to donate, or just make a quick donation online at anabaptistperspectives.org slash donate.
0: Thank you, Marlon. So here is the interview between Kyle and Marlon. We're doing
2: something a little different today. Um, We're doing this audio only in our new studio here with Marlon Summers, um, who did an essay on our blog, and we're going to dive in and Uh, go into maybe a little more detail, analyze that uh, a bit more. And also joining us is Kyle Stalsfus, who is an advisor to Anabaptist Perspectives. So I think Kyle, you had come up with a number of questions based on this article um, that Marlon had wrote um, about stewardship, management, labor, these different things. So we're gonna dive in and uh, hopefully learn something new. Um, And the link to that essay is going to be in the description. I recommend you go read it first before listening to this, just so you have a little more context. Uh, for what we'll be covering today. Marlon, is there anything you'd want to add to introduce the topic before we jump into the questions?
1: Yeah, so this is multi-part. The one essay is called Managers in God's Household and is trying to unpack this term in the New Testament um, that we often translate as steward or stewardship. And then there's a two-part essay about business as stewardship or business people as stewardship, which tries to make a few more applications specifically.
2: Good. Yeah. Well, let's jump into the questions then. Kyle, what, uh, what do you have for us today?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we've got these three articles to work with. Managers in God's household, then there's parts one and two of business people among God's servant managers. I think I'll, I'll jump in here, Marlon, if it's okay with you with this. The first one, I think it was your lead article, uh, Managers in God's Households, How to Be a Steward. And you begin the article with this parable of two woodpile managers, Bob and Jill. Uh, the, Bob here has the, the title of steward of the woodpile. And Bob, he goes and he burns up all the firewood in a bonfire. And Bill, he, um, I think I got the name wrong, Bill, he scrooges it away. and And you use this. And here's what you're driving at here, I think, if I'm getting the the thesis of the article right. You're driving at this understanding of stewardship. You say that a deficient notion of stewardship is sometimes used to defend miserliness, the pursuit of personal wealth and questionable practices of the financially shrewd. These misunderstandings exist because we have often missed the point that stewards are responsible to act for the benefit of others. Okay, so you're you're reframing some of this discussion by going in, getting a, a hold of this term stewardship, and saying that maybe we've misunderstood this. Um, how, explain to me, how did you get to the place of saying maybe we have a deficient notion of stewardship?
1: So I don't know exactly how I came to discover this, but my justification for saying this I think comes right out of the New Testament text where it's used. And we'll get into some more of that. And this really was exciting to me because it's like, it really opens up this idea of stewardship to be a lot more than we often think. So obviously, I think most of us know that stewardship doesn't mean miserliness. There's like these really bad interpretations of stewardship. Often, I would say, our better views of stewardship still focus it kind of very narrowly on money. Stewardship is often seen as like a counterpoint to generosity. can't be too generous because you have to be a good steward, which I think just misses a lot of things.
3: But You're picking up some cues from the text here. I find what you've done here in expanding the notion of stewardship being true to the text, as you said, opening up a lot of possibilities for how we think about this. Any other place that you you picked up some some push in this direction or is this, is this a lot of original work for you
1: i mean there's nothing new under the sun i've definitely found people that have helped you know broaden it beyond those kind of stereotypically narrow misunderstandings of stewardship reading a commentary on first corinthians i think from william barclay and i do remember there um, in the first part of first corinthians paul calls himself stewards of the gospel and I remember Barclay having a very helpful paragraph about what was a steward, what was the oikonomos in the, in the New Testament, in the New Testament world. And I'm sure there's been a lot more stuff than that. Um, but, yeah, the main emphases that I'm pushing here, and especially the way I'm fully developing them, I don't think I've seen many people or other people really pull those out.
3: Yeah, I, I would have been... Um There's different ways to approach this, and you've done a really good job of unpacking, I think, some of what uh, some of the possibilities that are in this in this just this little phrase stewards or stewards in the household of God. I do know that say in the Reformation, the hostafelm, that the household was gotten a hold of, especially by Luther as a way of understanding the priesthood of all believers and what a Christian household would look like. And you see that throughout the Reformers and, and also I think the Anabaptists are getting it too, that there's actually, there's something to the household that fits in the, in the larger economy of what God has in mind, and it, it indicts us. But just unpack this a little bit for us, just for the benefit of people who are listening in here. There's a deficiency if we just understand stewardship in terms of money and being miserliness. What more is there here than just money and being miserly and uh, saving as much as we possibly could? That's not stewardship. What is it?
1: Yeah, so there's a parable in Luke that um, uses the word steward, or the Greek term is oikonamos, uh, often put as manager, servant manager, household manager. Um, you'll see all of these translations. And Luke 12, uh, starting in verse 42, parable starts out, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, steward, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? And the first thing to jump out there is He's kind of over two things. He's set over the household, which would be, in this case, a group of slaves who were incorporated into the household of this master. And he's set there specifically to give them their portion of food at the proper time. He's in charge of the food uh, in this situation. It says, Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So this person is called a manager, even though he's not actually managing the whole household yet. He's got this specific job description of managing the food um, for all the people in the household. If he does that well, he's going to be managing all the things in the household, which often when we talk about stewards, we think in the household, we say oh, the steward was the person who was over all the affairs of his master. And probably often he was. But I find it interesting here that you can be a steward of even a very small thing. And then it goes on and says, so what if this servant says his master's not coming and starts to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk, gobbling up all the food instead of dividing it out among these other people? It says the master will come when he doesn't expect him and in quite vivid language, will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And so that, that passage really opened me to stewardship of what? Okay, what am I in charge of? In this case, the food. But who it was set over the household it's very clear this food is to benefit the whole household and not just this one person so you go back to those wood pile examples at the beginning of the story and the miserly person was preserving the wood pile there was more firewood there but this firewood was not providing heat for the members of the household his mom and his siblings were cold so he was categorically failing as a steward
3: which is to get a third question in there. There's there's a question of what God has entrusted me with, and there's a statement or a, a commitment to being responsible to God for the things that God has put in my control. But I think you're adding something more here, uh, and that's why it is <laughs> you're trying to address the question: Why is it that I've been been given charge of these sorts of resources? And to who other than myself? Am I actually responsible? It's not just God and me. There's there's actually a, a who that goes out into the community as well.
1: Yeah, that is absolutely key. And I think that's that's maybe the biggest lack in our stewardship discussions. We talk about it as if it's God and me. You know, we think about it as if we were investment managers or stock managers and God gave us some money and said, Make sure my stock portfolio is worth more, you know, when you die than when you were born.
3: So what th- what this reminds me of is is the parable of the talents, where the, the stewards are given uh, they're given some some charge of some resources. In this case, it's it's their allotment of talents, uh, the measure of money, and they're and they're rewarded when their master returns to some degree for for how it is they got on with it while their master was away. Um, but what I'm, what I'm hearing you say here is that there's more to this than just the increase of resources, right? And what more is there? I mean, most
1: bluntly, what more is there is you are a manager of a group of people. Now, let's take an example that's easy to understand. So let's go with parents. If you have a million dollars in your bank and your children starve, you are a failure as a parent. And a parent is one kind of a stewardship role, among many others, that can kind of fit um, this sort of structure. Uh, I think with something like the parable of the talents and a couple other of these financial parables, there's a very real danger of not studying those parables in their context enough. And people run away with the conclusion, oh, what this parable is teaching is this is exactly how we're supposed to handle money. When the thrust of those parables is much more about here's a comparison with people handling money for their master's purposes to show us how we should handle our master's resources for the purposes of our master. So I am worried about a lack of exegesis on those parables. Sometimes it quickly runs that really kind of divorces the parable and then kind of uses them to avoid reckoning with. Kind of the full teaching of jesus and the apostles about how to use money that's one angle to go with it but then i went throughout the new testament looking for places where the word steward is used and it's not used a whole lot to refer to money it's not used that many times period um, but there's a handful of really significant places and one is the overseer or again traditional terms for that is a bishop Remember the overseer or bishop elder in a congregation is referred to as God's steward. And there, the emphasis is really on his position. You know, Again, think of the church as the household of God. There, the emphasis is really, this person helps to govern the community, and so he's God's steward. It's not even on kind of what are the resources he controls as much as it is the guiding, directing role in the community. I think that really emphasizes it. Mm-hmm
3: or at least it's it's a very different coin that he's going to be working with if if what he's stewarding are the resources of faith and the sorts of patterns that the community is following and the the spiritual and physical well-being of the people that are there but i I think this is a fair and an important comparison to make what's happening so often in a parable is a comparison this is like that so some of the work you're doing here, and this is what's so illuminating, I think, is to say that when you're looking at the parable, what is it that's being increased? Is it money? Well, possibly, but you have to do the work of looking across the whole of what Scripture, and especially the New Testament, says about being a steward, and there's more there than just money, right? Absolutely. And even the parables about
1: money sometimes are making counterintuitive points. Uh, one person who really brought that out well is, remember, a sermon... Um, by Jaron, who's one of our staff here at Anabaptist Perspectives, uh, along with Reagan, helped get the whole thing started. And he took, I believe it was the parable of the talents, um, but at the very least, it was one of these parables related to money. And he preached a sermon on the whole context, the story before and after, and just brought out very well that, you know, the thrust of the scripture was very different than the some of the knee-jerk pop interpretations. Um, that we pulled out of it, and yes, it was the parable of the talents. I remember that clearly now.
3: I'm just going to pursue this a little bit further here with a few more questions about uh, finances and money, and if we're working within a deprived notion of what stewardship can mean, it's just going to be important to to develop it a little bit more. So that's what I'm going to keep pursuing you here a little bit. You call into question in one of the articles that you've written here. You've called into question and here I'm quoting you that the easiest path to the most lucrative returns is a good way to think about stewardship in business, okay? And I'm hearing possibly something of a rebuke in this of uh, what you could call about the Keynesian economics, which is one of the fundamental ways that our um, consumer-driven culture works, where people are basically invited to spend as much as they can, and this immunitized notion of God's providence, you'd call it the the invisible hand, just kind of drives things magically forward. Um, so just, just as an example of this, after the terrorist attacks on 9-11, the current president, George uh, G.W. Bush, was asked what Americans could do for their nation at this time. And his advice was for them to go shopping, right? Get out there and spend your money freely so the invisible hand can get to work and guide all of us toward wealth. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just make this a concrete question here. What, if you had been president, here's the good old classic ethical question, if you had been president at this time, what instead, with your vision here for stewardship, what would you have suggested? Well, I wouldn't have
1: been. <laughs> um, boy, so you're putting me on the spot and asking me to think about um, macroeconomic policy. There, maybe I can weave. Maybe I can weave my way into a little bit there. First of all, I am not an economist, but from the little bit that I understand, both the more general idea of the invisible hand, and even the emphasis by somebody like John Maynard Keynes. On the importance of spending and people being able to spend to make an economy function I do think there's some real real insight in both of those ideas um, that should be paid attention to so I'm not it's not a categorical rejection so maybe if we can think about during a depression this is a story that I read as a in a biography from the Depression era Um, so this is a farmer in Virginia um, the Great Depression hits People don't have money, so they can't buy things. As a result, prices tank on farm commodities. Um, Farmers can go bankrupt, um, basically can't keep operating. Um, But this farmer had a father-in-law who was well situated, was able to withstand the depression. And what he did was said, I think right now Since you don't have crops, there's not much harvesting to do, I think it's time to build a new barn. I'll lend you the money. You have trees. Um, We'll hire a crew to come in, cut them down, build the barn. Um, As part of me financing this barn, I'll pay your wife to cook for these people. And so on. And that's what they did. And I think this was both brilliant um, and excellent stewardship. Because okay, think about what happened. There was not a problem with, like, the supply of food. There was a problem with people being able to purchase it. And so this guy kept people working. So he paid wages to the people building the barn. He kept his son-in-law and his daughter going. And at the end of the day, there was a barn that could be used um, once things turned around. So he was actually boosting demand contrast that to the instincts of the self-interested rich person what does a self-interested rich person do when a depression hits hey everybody's going bankrupt we can buy up property cheap then when it booms i'll own everything and i'll really rake it in Um, but he didn't use this as a chance to buy somebody's farm cheap instead he used his money to loan it out and help somebody keep their farm and give people jobs and i think that's an excellent example of stewardship thinking in business
3: which which is not a it's it's no longer a way to just sanctify selfishness uh, because the invisible hand will make up the difference and then we'll all get rich you're, you're actually having to take a reasoned approach here and say how can i invest myself into a community for the care of these people for whom i am a steward and it sounds like in the example you gave this person actually thoughtfully engaged that community in a way that he became a steward for it and there, I guess in in the in the economy of God's kingdom, there was growth, there was increase there.
2: Yeah, I was going to say that's that's an interesting emphasis on um, instead of this is my stuff, it's more of how can I help enrich the community as well. That's that's really neat. I, I, yeah, I'd, I've never heard a story quite like that. That's that's a I don't know. You got to wonder how how would things be different if people were yeah. a little more focused that way instead of how can I take advantage of these people in a bad situation. It's like, oh, let's empower some people and hey, we'll get a barn out of the deal too. Like, I don't know, it's just kind of neat. It's kind of a everybody wins type situation, I guess.
1: Um, Yeah, and let me be clear on the invisible hand idea. You do have to understand how markets work. And, you know, whether it's individuals or whether it's policymakers who don't have a good grasp on how markets work, that's a recipe for disaster because you just don't understand stuff and you have to understand accounting and you have to understand profit and loss and balance sheets and all of that. It's all, um, very important. Um, but the problem comes in exactly what you said, this kind of, you know, relying on the invisible hand to take care of everything and we'll all get richer. No, you still cannot, there's still no substitute for deliberately deciding that I'm planning to do good and not harm in my business ventures. Like you still need principles about doing things that are beneficial
3: macroeconomics is just extremely difficult to comprehend. And many people wonder if anybody actually can, <laughs> just because of the, the complexities of it. it it's a, so to, to think about this, and you're doing some reversal here, I think that's just really intriguing. If, only, if the only thing you were interested in was just a generation of wealth, I kind of wonder if if some of the reversal you're talking about here might actually generate more wealth in the long run. I don't know that. I'm not not an economist either, but uh, just putting it out.
1: Right. It very well may, especially overall. And my point is there's a very strong principle that doesn't just ride on that. And especially when the stewardship is about personal wealth. I mean, so it strikes me that probably a lot of business people who run small businesses... In local communities that do a lot of good, could make a lot more money a lot easier if they went and got a high-paying corporate job and just plowed their money into mutual funds. But I think there's actually something important about those local businesses and putting other people to work and providing services in a community where running a business can be stewardship in a way that, oh, I'm just going to plow money as fast as I can into a mutual fund, is not.
3: Although Okay, I'm just my- gonna bounce off that with another question here. So there's not cons- there's not perfect consistency on this, but there is a historical distaste in the Anabaptist faith tradition. Uh there's a distaste for usury or interest. And I I'd even be willing to suggest that uh passive income in general is something that there you could you can look back and in the Anabaptism more than some traditions there's something of a distaste for that. Does what you say here about stewardship maybe illuminate this?
1: I'm not sure how, how particularly it ties in to that. But yes, you're absolutely right. Within the Anabaptist tradition, this distaste for usury, for interest, really that's so much more than Anabaptist tradition, though. I mean, that is the Christian tradition, and really more than the Christian tradition. That is the biblical tradition. But yeah, Anabaptist and passive income is also interesting. I mean, historically, there's this emphasis on working with your hands. And that does seem to include things like not just making money by owning things. Some communities don't like dealers. You're not supposed to just buy and sell something. You're supposed to make something. And you certainly shouldn't get paid for things like writing books or producing podcasts. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> As far as how closely it ties into the stewardship in particular, I mean, I do think that passive income can be good stewardship um, in the sense that I'm talking about here, where you recognize that, you know, having a rental house available is a good thing for a lot of people. If somebody is transient or whatever, and there's upkeep and management, there can be very good things about it. On the other hand, if you're a steward and you're a wealthy person with a lot of rentals, you do want to make sure that you're not somehow putting barriers in front of people buying those homes. You know, you actually do want to facilitate or encourage people not renting from you long term in a lot of situations. So I don't think it can explain the full scope of it, but it does tie into not all passive income is the same.
3: And maybe just attached to that, I will add a comment. It's just this, that as you look at historically look at anabaptism there is i think just a a natural hesitation about some kind of idea of just like invisible hand we've always been more christological in our orientation and i just mean by that when we think about things like god's sovereignty we're not quite so abstract about it we look at jesus and we say if you want to understand how god works in the world it's not just something that happens in spite of us. We actually get to cooperate with that activity. We actually get to be, we, we get to follow into and live into this invitation and the status to be one of God's stewards here. And when we do that, it's going to orient us in certain ways. And we're, we're not going to be quite so willing to beat the other people who have also had that same invitation and to exclude them or to put some barriers in their way. So it's just interesting to me, and you could tease out the theological things here, which I won't take the time to do, but there is a genealogy here that I'd suggest that it'd be worth looking into as well behind something like invisible hand economics and the more, more communal focus, I think, that we're describing here.
1: Yeah, an emphasis on how are you interacting with the people right around you and actually following Jesus' command. I mean, one of the things about the invisible hand is that the invisible hand can be very brutal. International markets become so complex that a shift in currency valuations can shift commodity purchasing from one continent to another. And all of a sudden, your source of income is wiped out because of some market thing somewhere you know nothing about. Now, the answer is not to say we don't have to understand the invisible hand or we're gonna get rid of markets, but the steward who has the resources can go into that community that lost their jobs and can think about what can I do to nurture productivity here since this source of income disappeared. And that, I mean, of course he's doing that as a business person. Part of that is finding a way that pays everybody involved, pays him for his work and investment, pays the people doing the work there, and so on. But I see no reason why that means it's going to be the most lucrative thing he could do. He might make a lot more in another continent. And let me be clear here, too. When I say that finding the most lucrative thing or the thing that maximizes profit is not your goal, it does not mean that you're doing away with profit. It's the idea that profit is something that has to be maximized, whereas a steward is going to look at and say, okay, what is an adequate and fair rate of profit, which might actually take more sophisticated business understanding to determine that than to just chase the maximum amount sometimes.
3: The parting question here is we're talking about uh, stewardship and how we think about it. So if, if, if it's not just about maximizing profit, well, I'll, I'll reframe that. If, if, if I were thinking about stewardship primarily as a way of maximizing profit what would I be missing out on? And here I'm thinking about your dissertation work. I had the, had the enjoyment of reading some of that anyway, so I think you really do a good job of expanding that. I'd also recommend this for reading too, if you get the chance. Okay, yeah, so in my
1: dissertation, I was focused on, especially the manual trades, the kind of things I grew up doing in construction or some things I've taken up since, kind of on the side with a little bit of gardening or mechanical work and how just doing that work is a way of really knowing the physical world that God created and yeah, knowing God's creation uh, knowing myself so there's this idea that craft um, as knowledge and so I guess I hear you bringing that in as another dimension of stewardship is just by working with God's world we actually know something about God through um, working with his world. That's not a connection I made when I was writing this, but thank you for making it. But what would I miss if I want to think about it is maximizing profit? Well, for one thing, profit in business terms and accounting is what goes to the person who owns this. But business is about a lot more than just what goes to the person who owns this the reason you get profit if you're doing business well is because you're putting people to work to make good use of resources to produce something that benefits other people and as a result of that there is profit for the owner but you can't only focus on profit and get rid of those other components or you are really missing the picture of stewardship you can't get rid of I'm trying to offer a product or service that is actually a good thing for people and benefits them and you can't get rid of and I want the people who work for me to be able to produce something good and get adequately rewarded for their contributions to producing something good. If you lose sight of those, you are no longer a steward.
3: I think I would go that far. Yeah, that's helpful. I, I, I think I, I think I'll I'll just make one comment here. Yet, and I am backing out away from some of the limitations of just thinking about stewardship as money. One of the gains I think you offer when we start to think about stewardship more as coming into and participating in God's household. I I think you, you give us a picture of how this can help us to actually discern what our vocation is. Okay. So if we're becoming managers or stewards in God's household, we, we begin to have something here to, to get a sense of calling. What I heard growing up and it was God's will, you know, finding God's will for my life, fitting into the, the household and the kind of stewardship that God has in mind for me. So I, I'll just frame this as a question here, and if you want to comment, that'd be, that'd be fine. How would it look if finding God's will had more to do with finding our place in God's household as a steward and less to do with getting some kind of hotline to God's secret will? I believe pretty strongly that
1: it actually does have more to do with finding our place in God's household than this kind of secret will Now, I do think that God can communicate to us directly sometimes and give us direction about where I'm going. But, I mean, simple things like if your church asks you to serve in leadership and there's not many people ready to step into it, that is a stewardship role. If there is a recession in your community and a lot of people are out of jobs and you are the person best equipped to get some kind of enterprise going, that is a stewardship role. If you need a school and you're the person best equipped to help get that started, that is a stewardship role of the opportunities you have or the skills you have or whatever. And there's all kinds of more things that go into sorting that out. But yeah, thinking about the role in your community and where the needs are, is very important. Now, every once in a while, God comes in and says, yes, I know it looks like you're really needed here, but I want to put you near the side of the globe. And God can do that. But that's not the most common scenario.
3: And this this is really exciting for me because it, it can just be bewildering sometimes to really to find our way. And I'm just I'm hearing from you in stewardship as you're talking about here. There's an invitation here. There's a summons to to go ahead and invest ourselves where we're at and to take some initiative and to explore creatively as we participate in God's household because we've been invited into that to explore creatively some of the possibilities that are just there and to, to actually cooperate with and participate in the work that god's doing in the world it's just tremendously exciting
1: absolutely tremendously exciting and should give us energy first peter 4 verse 10 as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of god's very grace whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of god Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. The very
3: graces of God. I'll end with this last question here, and then, Reagan, you can jump in. Just any parting words, Marlon, for entrepreneurs or businessmen who are listening in who want to become better managers or stewards in God's household?
1: Yes, and that is, I don't want to discourage people who are struggling. So I've talked about goals and ambitions for business. But there's also often a lot of times in business when you should be self-employed. You shouldn't be trying to bring in employees because arranging for your own job is enough. That's perfectly legitimate. There's times in business when you're just trying to keep your head above water and not end up bankrupt. And I'm absolutely not trying to guilt trip anybody that finds themselves in those circumstances. I'm trying to paint a vision for what does it look like when you can get this working, when you have freedom. And especially if you're the kind of person who is going to start pulling other people in under you and start building a team and so on um, then it becomes extremely important to get a
3: hold of this kind of vision yeah thanks so much Marlon and uh build your kingdom lord yeah amen wow, yeah, thanks for sharing guys that's
2: that's some powerful stuff, especially the emphasis on community and your encouragement to people there's excellent stewardship opportunities right where you are in your own churches to invest in people and yeah, wow, that's that's a lot of uh, new angles to this that I hadn't thought of before. So thank you all both for joining and sharing. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we release weekly podcasts uh, both here and on YouTube typically, and we have a website, anabaptistperspectives.org, and uh, also an exclusive podcast over on our Patreon feed at patreon.com slash anabaptistperspectives, where um, we answer audience questions and and release a a number of other um, exclusive pieces of content not available on other platforms. So thank you so much for your support and we will catch you in the next episode.